Okay, so here we begin our first uh, class on Clive Staples Lewis, who wrote about uh, 38 books. Uh, he was born in 1898. He's considered one of the uh, intellectual, really, giants of the 20th century. Um, certainly one of the most, it got to be top three Christian writers of the 20th century, Mere Christianity, uh, uh, Christianity Today, selected as the, the top Christian book of the 20th century. Um, so he, he was born in Belfast in 1898. And by the way, um, you don't have to take notes. You don't even really have to read the book. But if you, but I, I get a <laughs> The reason I select a book is because, and I'll get to why this one, but, um, but with Lewis particularly, I'll quote a number of passages and then explain them because I want you to hear his voice and not just sort of my redaction of, of what he wrote. So, um, so feel no pressure. There's no tests. Um, if you didn't get to it this week, don't worry about it. You can always go back to it. I really want this to be a low-intensity sort of thing, so that if you just like coming out on Tuesday night and hanging out and hearing a talk, great. You know, don't, don't sweat it. So he's born in 1898, uh, one brother, um, and he ultimately went to uh, Campbell College in Belfast in 1910. It was at age of 15 that he became an atheist. And this is one of the reasons I think he's, he's so compelling, because he was baptized, uh, Episcopalian, but he became an atheist by choice. And uh, he ultimately went to University, of, uh, University College of Oxford in 1916. Um, after the outbreak of World War I, he enlisted and uh, was wounded in battle. He was exposed to trench warfare, I mean, all of the horrible things of World War I which definitely, of course, I'm sure, as everybody who fought in that war, had a tremendous impact on him. Uh, so he was discharged in 1919 and uh, ultimately graduated uh, with uh, three firsts out of Oxford. Uh, one was in Greek and Latin literature. Uh, it's said that he could write and read Greek and Latin fluently. Uh, the other one was in, um, in English, and the other one was in literature. Um, so, you know, nothing like a triple degree and highest honors. Uh, he ended up then uh, teaching at Oxford, and um, it's there that he went from being an atheist to becoming a Christian again, or accepting Christianity. Uh, 1931 marks the year of his conversion. And he, he cites, what's interesting is he cites two Catholics as his, his uh, primary influence. I mean, you know, besides God, but, you know, his primary personal influence on, on coming back to the faith. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was also Anglican, who did convert to Catholicism, and J.R.R. Tolkien um, as well. Uh, Tolkien being a, a good friend of his uh, throughout his life. Uh, he was married at age uh, 58. He married very late to an American writer. Um, and they were only together for four years because she died of cancer. Um, 
She died in 1960. And then uh, on November 22, 1963, three very influential people died. Uh, JFK, uh, Aldous Huxley, and C.S. Lewis. Uh, two of these people actually influenced me, C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley, who wrote uh, Brave New World, which is actually a, a fantastic book, um, a book that I, I actually like to teach on as well, because it uh, talks about, I think it very adequate or accurately describes the modern milieu uh, a little bit better than um, a little bit better than, uh, what do you call it, uh, 1984. Okay, so when I was, uh, when I was in high school, a lot, of my, a lot of my influences came through music. So when I was in high school, one of, my, uh, one of the artists that I was listening to referenced The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And so I was like, okay, what's that? And I went to Catholic high school. I've been, you know, Catholic all, all my life. So I read The Great Divorce, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. I'll read another one. So then I, I think I read Mere Christianity. I think this is my original copy. Mm. Um, I read The Problem of Pain, which was a huge influence on me, where he takes on the, the question, it's theodicy, the question of suffering. The Great Divorce is, is about the afterlife, free will. The Abolition of Man is, is a very prophetic text which talks about the loss of morality in the world today. Uh, the screw tape letters, I've, I've taught on this as well. It's uh, probably with Mere Christianity. These are the, t Mere Christianity and screw tape are the, are probably his most, two most famous religious writings. Um, it's a fictional account of a lower level devil trying to convert a, a man to atheism. It's, uh, for that reason alone, my mother said, I'm not reading it devils and such. <laughs> there's there's other, uh, a couple other books that are, uh, after his wife died, he wrote, this is his journal. He actually published this pseudonymously um, right under a different name because it basically takes him through his entire grief process after his wife died. Um, it's, and it's, it's pretty stunning because he's, he goes through all of the all of the typical emotions of grief, and, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Surprised by Joy is his uh, autobiography. The Four Loves is uh, another wonderful book. Uh, talks about different ways of loving, right? Loving as a friend is different than loving as a, uh, loving a spouse or loving God. Uh, Miracles is another off-sighted work where he talks about miracles, but he also takes on... Uh, the question of uh, naturalism and that he believes that it's uh, a self-refuting. If you don't know what that means, it's okay, we'll get there. So uh, why C.S. Lewis? Uh, number one, I, I love his writing. It's, uh, it's had a profound influence on me. Probably uh, no other writer has influenced me uh, the way that he has, both uh, intellectually as well as spiritually. Uh, when I was younger, I... Um, so my beginning years of college, I found that a lot of the, a lot of the, and this is where I was at at the time, okay? So I found that a lot of the spirituality being offered seemed very feminine. And uh, I've never really been very feminine. And so I was looking for, 
something that had, I don't know, it just, at that time, I, I mean, I, I, have a different, I have a different outlook on spirituality now, but at that time, I was looking for just sort of a straight shooter, somebody who just told it like it was and didn't, you know, try to make it cozy and comfortable. And so, no, don't interrupt me. So what happened was um, I found Lewis, and in finding Lewis, um, I, I not only found an intellectual, you know, defense of the faith, but I also found, for me at the time, a spirituality that really resonated with me. Um, so one of, the, one of the reasons why uh, I chose C.S. Lewis is the personal reason, but then the other reason is because what he does in this book, we could do if, if for instance, I just taught a class on, on natural law. And I said, okay, we're going to read the, uh, the Prima Segunda Pars of the Summa Theologiae by St. Thomas Aquinas, and we'll talk about that. And uh, there'd be maybe two of you left at the end. <laughs> because while he is the preeminent thinker on that, the way in which he approaches it is just not accessible. It's just not accessible. And um, it's, it's really good for, for reference, it's good for in-depth theological studies, but, um, but, but I don't think it's good in setting up the foundations of, of basic Christian doctrine. But also what happens with Lewis is he basically gives the argument for how he came back to the faith looking at it sort of rationally as well as intuitionally, and looking at the evidence that, that he just found around him. So what he does is he creates for us, how, well, I won't ask how many people read the first book, but, you know, the first five chapters, but the, um, what he does is he lays this whole foundation of how he gets to God. Really, the first five chapters have very, I mean, they have to do with God, but not directly. He's getting us there but they're all preliminary questions, okay? Um, and so I think that this book does that, uh, and, and Lewis does that in a lot of places, um, very, very well. A little bit of background to the book. Uh, in 1940, he wrote The Problem of Pain, um, which, as I said, has probably been the primary influence on me because I've always been fascinated with the question of suffering in the world. You know, why does a good and all-powerful God allow people to suffer, right? I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the most vexing question probably in, in the history of, of Christianity, really, really the, the history of the world for those who believe in some sort of good God. Um, but, but all religions take on that question in some way or another. So, um, so like when I was in Rome and I was studying for my licentiate degree, I actually uh, did my degree on, uh, or my, my thesis on Lewis's um, theodicy, his explanation for why God allows suffering, which isn't just in the problem of pain. There's sections in mere Christianity. There's sections in, but I just took on his, his nonfiction writing, not his fiction writing, um, for that question, because there's some great fiction uh, as well where he explains it. But that but that, that question so, ha, has really vexed me. So anyway, he wrote The Problem of Pain in 1940, and there was a producer at the BBC who was, um, who was really taken by it. You know, it was, it was lauded as, as this, this really quite fine book. And uh, World War II, right, breaks out. 
And so he gets contacted by the BBC to give these broadcast talks. And they, they, this producer calls him and he says, this, this, you know, this book, The Problem of Pain, was great. Is there something you can put together to, to talk about sort of what's happening in the world, to talk about you know, something that sort of lifts up all, peoples in, all of the peoples in England? People were being you know, bombarded by the, by the Germans. Uh, they're seeing the, the collapse of, of Europe. They're seeing, you know, Nazism uh, come across all of the continent and seemingly is on their doorstep, really is on their doorstep. And they're, they're kind of thinking the end may be near. We're not in the war yet. So um, 1941 is when he was contacted to do this. So the first broadcast talks that he gave over the BBC um, during wartime to, to, of course, all of, all of the UK was in, uh, toward the end of 1941. And so there were, there were four series of talks, um, sort of 41, 42, 43, and 44, uh, that he gave uh, to all of England. And, and the way that he approached it, and if you read the preface to the book, he explains it. He explains he had to take these talks, which it's different when you talk about something and when, then when you write it. And so he had to translate it to the written page. But then he also had the desire to write the, the book and, and also you know, produce the talks in such a way that he wasn't really taking sides with any of the Christian religions. So his whole point was to, to give a basic explanation of sort of the foundation of Christian belief, which it's true that we all share because all of the, all of the Christian churches accept they accept the authority of the Catholic Church for the first number of ecumenical councils that deal with uh, the Trinity and, uh, you know, everything from, you know, the, the entire creed, um, et cetera. So th there is a basis or a basic, a baseline that all Christians believe. So he didn't get into issues like uh, Holy Communion, you know, and the, and the distinction between what do Lutherans believe um, as opposed to Catholics, right? What, I mean, they both believe that Holy Communion is sacred. Um, however, they, they believe different things about Holy Communion. But he didn't want to get into these sort of issues because, you know, consider what he was trying to do. You know, he's trying to, trying to communicate to this entire country filled with Catholics and Protestants, and not just, not just you know, England, but, but obviously all of the U.K., He's trying to communicate to all of them and also sort of get them to think about ultimate ideas and, and also to grow in their relationship with God. And he wasn't really that concerned about things that would divide people. So there are those issues, uh, and he, he makes note of them. You know, he even, he even sent his drafts off to, uh, to uh, you know, representatives of, of different faiths. Because as he continues to say, it's just really funny because he... Uh, He'll say pretty much in all of his books how he's not a professional theologian. Um, and he's not, technically. Uh, he's not technically a theologian, um, but he, you know, could, could read the, the Bible in its original Greek, and he read St. Thomas Aquinas uh, frequently. He clearly has a huge uh, debt to St. Augustine in his, uh, in his theology as well. So um, his... Theology is very much within the tradition of, of the Catholic Church. Um, now, about questions, uh, 
I don't take them uh, while, I'm, while I'm talking. What I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll give space for questions, maybe. Um, I, ta I taught a bioethics uh, class one time. It was, six, six, uh, it was just the beginning of life, but I did six classes on beginning of life bioethics. Um, which is my specialization, and uh, I said, I'm not going to ask questions, I'm not going to let you ask any questions until the end. Uh, why not? Because I'm going to give you all of the tools to answer the questions, so let me give you the tools, and if you still have questions, and if I didn't cover it, well then, you know, I'll open it up. So I had one question at the end of six weeks. So I, that isn't to say you won't have more questions, but, um, but what I have is a particular objective that I want to get to, and uh, then what I'll probably do, I might at the end of each class sort of, sort of open it up. As we get further on, um, I think there may be more questions, okay? So, um, how many people thought, how many people found him a little tough to read? A little tough? Okay. How many people felt very comfortable reading him? So, how many people didn't read anything? Okay, it's all right. It's all right. So, um, now, just a comment on that about tough to read, you know, I, John Paul II, I thought, was very difficult to read. Pope Benedict, I thought, was very clear. C.S. Lewis, I think, is very clear. I think G.K. Chesterton is not really that good of, of a writer, ultimately. I don't think he's really clear. There are people who completely disagree with me on that. I have friends who completely disagree. So, you know, a lot of it is, is sort of subjective, like the, the, the things you're comfortable hearing, the way, the way that you read it, and the way that you connect. It's very common to connect with particular authors and to not connect with others, just how it is. That's why not everybody reads Tom Clancy or, you know, whoever. I don't actually know any novelists. <laughs> That's the only novelist I know. <laughs> okay. Okay, so here we go. Now, if you look at the, the first section, um, it, it, you know, in the first, the first uh, chapter is the law of human nature. Right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. Lewis is not taking up the question of God yet at all. He's not even entertaining that question, okay? What he's really, uh, he calls this the law of human nature. Okay, sometimes he'll call it the moral law. And, uh, you know, a more traditional philosophical or theological um, uh, way of describing this or title for this would just simply be called the natural law. Okay, now, what, what, he's, what he's basically getting at is there's this, there's this some sort of standard of behavior that all of us agree exists that can't be denied. All right, there's a standard of behavior which one man expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard. He just makes excuses. Or that if it does, 
there is some special excuse. Okay, so there is this law that all of us sort of um, follow, and we all know that it's, it's wrong to, to break this law. For instance, um, <laughs> for instance, going into the 15 items or less line with a full bag of groceries, <laughs> which is one of my pet peeves. I can't stand it. You know, and I don't mean like 17. By the way, I count every single item and I'm 15 or under because that's the rule. Unless I go into one of those stores that say about 15 and then the law is different. But that says 15 items or less and I follow it. And the knucklehead who goes in there with, with 50 items, you know, they know they're wrong. I know they're wrong and they won't even make eye contact because they know they're wrong. <laughs> Or so, uh, let's see, what else? You know, just, so, just, Lewis uses very basic sort of human behaviors. Uh, you know, something as simple as telling a lie, okay? People are not, you know, we're in this day and age where, where morality is truly subjective. That is, it's determined by the individual subject. I determine my own morality. But what he would say, and I, I would agree with him, is that despite that fact, there are still certain things that everybody agrees upon, like lying. You don't lie to somebody directly. And that if you do lie to somebody directly, the person who gets caught in the lie doesn't say, well, I don't care about that. I don't care about it. I can lie whenever I want. What they do is they, they excuse it, which happens in confession. <laughs> Father, I told these lies. You did, okay. Well, but they were very small lies, okay? Well, because here's the situation, Father. I was, you know, and I just had to cover for, you know, I don't, I don't really care. But, but what happens in the individual is, is exactly what he's saying. People are trying to, trying to say, well, well yeah, I, I acknowledge that rule exists out there. You shouldn't lie. But either it doesn't apply to me in the circumstance or... There's a reason why I didn't really, I didn't really lie. Like it's a white lie, or it's not as bad of a lie, or it's a, you know something like that. And what he says is that this law of nature, uh, this law of human nature, rather, um, this moral law, this natural law, it's sort of an inclination. It's just in us. That's how um, actually Saint Thomas Aquinas talks about the natural law. He talks about it as an inclination. All right, it's just something within each individual that drives them to know that you should strive to do good and you should try to avoid doing evil. Good is to be pursued, evil is to be avoided. People just know that. What they, what they tend to disagree on is what is good and what is evil. They might disagree about the facts, but they, don't, they do not disagree about the principle that I should do good and I should avoid evil. What we have right now, right in the... In the, in the world today and in, in our society has a lot to do with the disagreement about the facts. Take anything, take, take the issue of homosexual marriage, right? There's a huge disagreement as to whether or not that should be okay um, among citizens, obviously not with the Supreme Court, but, but among citizens, it's still a debated issue. But it's not really a debated issue that people should be treated with dignity or kindness or love 
the question comes down to the facts of how should that be applied. But very often, what ends up happening is, is the arguments get, get obfuscated, whether it's that issue, you can pick any issue, and people who basically, dis they, they basically agree with all of that stuff, you know, that is that the good should be pursued, that people should be treated properly, they should be treated with respect, um, they should not be persecuted because of, you know, how they live, etc. Everybody pretty much agrees on that. They disagree about how that is made manifest in fact or in law. Um, and what he says is, and he takes this on actually in the abolition of man, if I'm not wrong, in the very back, he actually lists, um, yeah, he lists all these different types of moral norms that exist in all kinds of cultures. And what he says is, um, pretty much in all kinds of different civilizations and different ages, um, they, they maintained the same sort of, of codes of ethical behavior. And where they disagreed had to do with issues of fact. So for instance, oh, he even quotes it here, yeah. Some of the evidence I have for this I put together in the appendix of the abolition of man. But for our present purpose, I need only ask the reader to think what a totally different morality would mean. Think of a country where people admired, were admired, where people were admired for running away in battle. Think of a country where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have dis differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone, but they have always agreed that you ought not put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. So this is what he's getting to. He's, he's getting to a very macro, very high level idea of morality that he believes permeates all cultures and all times. And this is what he says next. But the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining it's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson, which is an uh, English... Uh, I got the thing here. Basically, before you can blink, it's an English colloquialism. Um, so his next point, though, is that although we, we can observe or we, we can know through, through our own intuition, through the way that we, we go about life, that all of us have this sort of law of human morality, this law of decency of how we should, ought to treat one another. That's the first point he makes. The second point is this, that none of us are really keeping it. <laughs> so there are two things. Number one, you know, there are these concepts of, like he says, uh, you know, we should be, we should be brave, and that's a, that's a virtue that's upheld, or we should be honest, um, we should be fair, we should be decent. Um, and we all recognize that these are things we ought to do, and then at the same time we recognize we're not doing them. That's the second point that he makes. Um, so what he's saying is, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. 
I mean, you can think back, you can just reflect on, on, on your own life, you know. I mean, everybody hates to be lied to. I mean, who would say, well, that's great. You've chosen your own morality. I, I respect your human dignity and your individuality. That's fantastic. And go ahead and lie to me and be unfair to me any time you like. No one would ever say that, right? That's what he's getting at. But at the same time, you know, I reflect on my life and I think, well, but have I lied? Ugh. Have I been unfair? I... So the standards that I recognize exist sort of there. There's the standards that, that exist of human behavior. And I expect everybody else to do it. But then, when I'm really honest, I recognize, boy, I haven't kept that nearly as much as I ought to, right? And this is a problem. This is a problem. Okay. So there could be all kinds of excuses for not, not keeping the behavior, but he says this. And I, Lewis has this way of finishing his chapters with kind of a zinger. Not all of them, but some of them. The question of the moment is not whether they are good excuses for not keeping the law of decency or law of human nature. The point is that they are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. If we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? The truth is we believe in decency so much we feel the rule of law pressing on us so that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it, and consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. For you notice that it is only for our bad behavior that we find all these explanations. It is only our bad temper that we put down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves. <laughs> we claim responsibility for that. We excuse all of our bad behavior well, Father, why were you irritable today? Well, I didn't get breakfast, and no one was listening to my homily. I could tell. And <laughs> people were bugging me. I don't know. You know, there's all these reasons, and that's why I'm irritable. Um, and so we try to excuse that because we recognize it isn't right, right? That's the whole point. We recognize it's some kind of failure. But then when we look at, well, I was really patient today. You know, I was good for me. Boy, I'm so moral. I'm so virtuous. <laughs> we take complete responsibility for that, right? So you understand the, the, the inconsistency. We don't want to take responsibility for our bad behavior, or we're tempted not to. Um, and kids do this, like, right away, right? I mean, how early do they do that? Like, two? <laughs> I didn't do it. Come on. I saw you do it. I didn't do it. Um, so we, we take, so in other words, the point is, the point he's making is that if you say there are these other reasons for, for your bad behavior, then you should say there are these other reasons for your good behavior. But we don't do that. And that's our inconsistency, is that we don't want to take responsibility for the fact that we do not live up to the very moral law that we expect of ourselves and we expect, we expect of each other. So he says, these then are the two points I wanted to make. First that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. 
so that that's it's just a it's just a different way of going about it. I mean, uh, you know, St. Thomas's five proofs for the existence of God, which I don't think I can remember all five here, right here, to be honest with you, but um, they're just so different than than this. So he's setting up his his belief in the existence of God from this 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 almost gut reality we all have that we ought to behave in the right way. We ought to behave in a good way, in a good and moral and ethical way. And yet we know we don't, and this frustrates the heck out of us. And this creates this, this conflict within us. Okay, so that's the, that's the first chapter, second chapter. He got some uh, objections, and I'll just kind of note these. I should probably follow my notes just so I don't... Make Oh, yeah. Oh, so here's some good examples. See, this is why I write notes. So the, the, the hurricane in Houston, right? The horrible hurricane in Houston. Joel Olstein, right? Of, you know, he's got that church down there, big mega church. And he didn't open his doors soon enough. And everybody thinks that's wrong. That's what Lewis is saying. Now, I'm not saying he's wrong. I don't know what was going on in his church. I don't, I can tell you that I think he mismanaged the situation, you know, as far as PR goes. I mean, maybe he really had a legitimate reason for not being able to open it yet. Would have been good to say that a few days earlier so people knew because it kind of looks like he only opened it up because he was forced to. But every single person, pretty much every single person says, well, that's horrible. That is just horrible. And then every single person is an expert on Christian ethics. <laughs> well, he, he's a Christian. Christians don't behave that, you know, in that manner. When was the last time you went to church? You know, go to, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. What does it matter then? There's still this sense that what he did was wrong. And it doesn't matter if you're atheist. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or you know, Buddhist or whatever. And then there's the other guy who has all these furniture stores and mattress stores. That was amazing. The guy opened up his doors to all these people. And what's fascinating to me about this, I mean, it's amazing he did it. But what's fascinating to me about this is everybody says, this guy's a hero because he did what he, he did what he had, he didn't have to do. You know, he, he allowed all these people to, to sleep on beds and, and, and uh, furniture that, you know, they're, they're his livelihood. And so he, look at the generosity with which he opened that up. You know, it's just so amazing. But then, you know, Joel Osteen, so they would, nobody would have ever expected furniture guy to do it. But that he did it was heroic. But if he never did it, he wouldn't get bad press. But he did it, and so he's a hero. And then Joel Osteen, you know, totally messed it up. And maybe didn't want, I don't know what, you know, the truth is, but... But everybody's a total critic on him because he's supposed to do it. Why is he supposed to do it and the other guy isn't supposed to do it? Why is that? These are the kind of things Lewis is asking. Why do we think that way? Well, because we think that, you know, a church should do that because that's what church people are supposed to do. <laughs> that's what Christians are supposed to do, I guess. So it's, it's that internal right, sense that we all have that we just saw play out that Lewis is getting at. And he's saying that's, that's an indicator about the nature of, of man, of, of humanity. It's an indicator of our nature. 
and it's also an indicator of the nature of the universe, and let's explore that. Now, he got some, he got some uh, objections. One was, well, can't you just chalk this intuition sort of thing up to herd instinct? Um, and he says, of course, he says no. You know, like the animals just do what animals do, some sort of instinctual impulse. And, uh, and he says, we all know what it feels like to be prompted by instinct, by mother love, sexual instinct, or the instinct for food. It means that you feel a strong want or desire to act in a certain way. But feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help whether you want to or not. Supposing you hear a cry from a, for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help due to your herd instinct, right, that initial impulse. The other is a desire to keep out of danger due to the instinct for self-preservation. But you will, inf you will find inside you, in addition to those two impulses, one seeking self-preservation, the other one to assist, you'll find a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Now this thing that judges between two instincts that decides which should be encouraged cannot itself be either of them. Does that make sense? So um, let's pick on Joel a little bit more. So the uh, poor guy. So, um, well, no, let's, we'll, we'll pick the hero. You know, poor Joel. So mattress guy, um, you know, there's all these people that are in danger and they're, they're, uh, they're in need and they've lost their homes, but he has a business. And allowing all these people in, so on one hand, he wants to help. That's the first instinct. And then on the second hand, well, what's this going to do to his stores and, and to his merchandise? And how much money is he going to lose? And what about the insurance? And will that even cover it? I don't know if that'll cover it. How's it going to work out? And so what Lewis is saying is, okay, there's the, the self-preservation. I have to preserve my stores. And there's the desire to help his, his uh, fellow citizens in Houston. These, these are competing natural sort of instinctual things. And what he's saying is, but there's a third thing. There's a third thing that's judging. There's a third thing that's saying, okay, there's this desire and there's this desire. What's the right thing to do? And that Lewis is saying that that's the law of human nature. There's this law inside of us which, which tells us to move in one direction or the other. Now, you know, you move further along in, in uh, theology, not just theology, but... Um, but you're going you're gonna to run into conscience. And conscience is, of course, you know, making decisions with knowledge, um, which, well, I we won't get into that. That's going to take us too far off track. All right, so conscience, which is this internal voice that tells us to do the good and avoid the evil. But he's not getting there yet because as soon as he says conscience, everyone's like, ah, you're a theist. He's, he's still way, way back here saying, no, there's this thing inside of us. And he's not naming it other than saying it's this law of human nature that's, that's weighing these two possible instincts and is saying, suppress one and go with the other. Okay? Another way of seeing the moral law is not simply one of, as it, that it's not simply one of our instincts is this. 
If two instincts are in conflict, and there's nothing in a creature's mind except those two instincts, obviously the stronger of the two must win. But at those moments when we are most conscious of the moral law, it usually seems to be telling us to side with the weaker of the two impulses. You probably want to be safe much more than you want to help the man who is drowning, but the moral law tells you to help him all the same. Right? So this is another reason, if, if it was merely some sort of instinctual thing, like the animals, they follow their strongest impulse, their strongest desire, which is apparently to roam my yard if you are a skunk. <laughs> we're, up to, we're up to 12 caught and, and a 13th still roaming. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the animal is going to do, the, the animal is largely going to follow his strongest impulse, his strongest inst instinct. But an animal is going to have a really hard time sacrificing his instinctual needs, right, for something else, all right? So, whereas with, with the moral law within man, the stronger instinct doesn't always win. Very often, in fact, what we're called to do is the thing we want to do the least. I don't want to tell the truth, you know? How many times has that happened since we were three or whenever we talk? I don't know when that is, but... Um, for me, it was like one. I, no, I don't know. I don't know when people talk. I don't, I'm not a parent. When does it happen, Ted? One or two. One or two? Somewhere like six. Except no. That comes first. No comes first. No. Mama and then no. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's his other reason. That's his other objection to the objection that this is merely instinctual. Well, because he says no. Sometimes the stronger impulse is not the one we know we ought to follow. We still might do it. We still might lie. We still may not assist. But we know that we were then in the wrong for not doing so because of that other element, that other law that pulls us in that direction. A third way of seeing it. If the moral law was one of our instincts, we ought to be able to point to some one impulse inside us which was always what we would call good always in agreement with the rule of right behavior. But you cannot. There is none of our impulses which the moral law may not sometimes tell us to suppress and none which it may not sometimes tell us to encourage. Because strictly speaking, there is no such thing as good or bad impulses or instinctual desires. All right? The desire to, to drink alcohol, as long as this is in moderation, is, is it's a fine instinct, it's a good instinct. Or even the desire not to drink alcohol at a certain point, good instinct. But the desire to drink alcohol all the time, we would say, well, wait a second, that's where the instinct right, gets out of whack. And the reason it gets out of whack is because of our own freedom aligning ourselves with that pull. It's, it's ourselves who then take the, the instinct too far. So, um, Aristotle, I told you you're just going to run into this stuff. In the, oh, I hope I spell this right. Nicomachean Ethics talks about virtue. By the way, so does St. Thomas Aquinas because he's influenced by Aristotle as the mean uh, between two desires. Okay, so. 
that is, you, you're virtuous as long as you're in the middle of, of two desires. So the, the sexual instinct, sex all the time, sex none of the time. Sex when it's appropriate, when you know, a married couple is, is uh, you know, having a family and continuing to you know, do what you do. There's a child in the room. So it's good, but, it, but if it's out of whack, we're, we're choosing to move it too far or too little, okay? Same thing with alcohol, same thing with, I mean, it's good to be Catholic, same thing with alcohol, same thing with cigars, same thing with gambling. Um, is gambling wrong? No. Did you gamble away your house payment? Yes, it's wrong. Um, so, so there's a moderation that he's talking about there, that, that the, the desire to do something itself isn't evil. And this is something that I think... Uh, you know, in the moral life and in the spiritual life, people often get really confused about. A temptation is not a sin. A desire to do something isn't a sin because you haven't done it. It's still a temptation, you know. So once, once you align your freedom with it, your will to that temptation, it becomes sinful. But that will, the, 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 the free will of the individual is, is different from the desire, because we know when we do something wrong, the reason we feel guilty we did it wrong, that, that we did that which is wrong, the reason we feel guilty for it is because we know we chose it. That's why we feel bad. And that's why we try to make all kinds of excuses why we had to choose it, we didn't really choose it, or it really wasn't that bad. Because we know that if we're fully culpable and responsible, then we're guilty, right? Then we've sinned. Okay. Um, Oh, I have the start to read this. By the way, this point is of great practical consequence. The most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. You might think love of humanity in general was safe, but it is not. If you leave out justice... You will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence and trials for the sake of humanity and become, in the end, a cruel and treacherous man. It's interesting. Could, could the practice of religion be too much? I think so. I think so. I mean, if, if a person is uh, practicing their religion, uh, prayer, reading, basically ignoring their family, so let's say a mother is so consumed with you know, seemingly good things, prayer, going to church, being involved, and, you know, and then when she goes home, she's, she's reading about God, and she's praying, and the kids are like, Mom, you know, what about me? Go away. I'm, this is a more important thing than you. No, it isn't. <laughs> it isn't. So that if even religion itself can become, remember, this is what the Pharisees, that's, this, is, this is one of their primary flaws, is they, they set themselves up as this, the ultimate practitioners of, of Judaism, and it, and it became their downfall. So even something seemingly good, the desire to worship God, can become very bad if it's out of proportion. Um, another question is, well, isn't this social convention? And this is a, I think this is a better objection because we hear it more often. Well, the only reason you believe in, in the right and wrong or that list of moral codes 
is because you were taught that. Well, you grew up Catholic. That's why you think that's right or wrong. Or, you know, uh, your parents taught you that, so that's why. Or you went to that kind of school. Or, you know, in other words, it's, uh, you know, our brains are this blank slate where other things, other people, other institutions have impressed upon us a moral code, and the only reason we follow it is because of those influences. That's, that's the objection, right? And you've heard that plenty of times, right? If I can just, I mean, wasn't that what the 60s were about? If I can just release myself from all of this uh, archaic morality that has been imposed upon me by, by, by this society, then I can be truly free. Um, so that, so, and Lewis is saying, well, you know, wait a second. Your teachers teach you multiplication, right? They teach you math, and math is true whether or not you know it, but it's still taught to you. And what he's saying is the law of, the law of human nature, oh, I took it away. The law of human nature is more like math than it is about, like, I don't know, whether or not, he uses an example here. Um, oh, he uses the example of driving on one side of the road or not. You know, in England, they drive on the other, the wrong side of the road. <laughs> you know, he's saying, no, the, the law of this instinct or this, this natural, instinct is the wrong word, this uh, inclination uh, to do what is good and avoid what is evil, this law of, of morality is more like math than it is like a social convention of, of particular societal laws, etc. It's something far more... Um, it's, it's something far more objective, okay, than that. And he gives two reasons for saying that. The first is this. As he said in the first chapter, that there are differences between the moral ideas of one time or country and those of another. The differences are not really very great, not nearly so great as most people imagine. And you can recognize the same law running through them all. Whereas mere conventions, like the rule of the road, or the kind of clothes people wear may differ to any extent. The other reason is this. When you think about these differences between the morality of one people and another, do you think that the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of, of, of another? Now this is a huge, uh, he's writing this and well, he finishes it in the late 40s, but um, you know, with multiculturalism today, you know, you are not, if you go to college, you, do, you are not allowed to judge another culture. Every culture is equal. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the Aztec culture beheading, uh, uh, you know, human sacrifice of, of, of foreigners and then, uh, you know, chopping their heads off and cannibalism. I don't know. I mean, I'm just going to throw a guess out there and say that culture is not as good as ours. And then somebody might say, if, if you got your thinking cap on, yeah, well, w wait a second. He's saying that <laughs> all these cultures share a common morality. And so what about that culture that they're cannibals and they're, you know, they're beheading people, human sacrifice, all that stuff? What about that? Because they're not holding. Isn't that, doesn't that vitiate your argument? Doesn't that go against your argument that all cultures kind of hold the same concepts? And, of course, what you have to look at is, in that culture, the people they sacrificed, they considered subhuman. Because if you weren't a part of the tribe, if you weren't a part of, 
of that culture, they didn't consider you human, but they would never do it to somebody who's human. So again, it's a, it's a, he gets to this later on when he talks about witches, but he says the, the disagreement there is about a matter of fact, not about the concept of you don't kill human beings. But if you believe somebody is subhuman, and again, this is obviously he's writing this during World War II, if you believe Jews are subhuman and that they can be killed, right? Well, that's why they can be killed, because you believe that they're a lesser species, right? You don't believe that they're actually human. And that's why you get, not, not to mention that, that uh, when you're making these kind of arguments, you're always going to have outliers. You know, you're always going to have somebody who's crazy, you know, somebody who's completely off the reservation, and you can't, you can't build an argument based on that. It's like one of those hypotheticals, you know, what if there's a nuclear war and there's only one man and one woman left on a desert island and, you know, they're related, they're f like first cousins, but they're not married, but then they get married, but there's no one there to witness the marriage, so is it a sacramental marriage? And then, but, what it, but it's the only way to propagate the species, but then if they, you know, do or try, they're related and you're not supposed to do, right? I mean, one of those things, which we can do with every single argument, is um, it, nobody who really actually enters or engages into, in, you know, kind of an intellectual debate will go to that kind of absurdity because it's an absurdity. Okay. So, um, so he's saying, you know, do you believe that some cultures actually have grown or they've progressed in their morality. Um, and he says, progress means not just changing, but changing for the better. If no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. And what he's going to say is, he's not going to try to say savage morality is the same as Christian morality, and that's this law of human behavior. This is why he stays at such a large, um, sort of a, a macro, you know, 3,000 foot, sort of whatever, 12,000 feet level. It's because he's going to say, no, look at, even if you look at savage morality, um, oh, that's probably a politically incorrect word. I don't know how he's applying that. We'll just presume like cavemen are savages, okay? So, um, you know, caveman morality, clearly there was development and morality along, along human history. But what he's saying is there was morality. There was still this innate desire on the part of human beings to construct a morality that they knew inherently there was a way of acting that was good and there was a way of acting that was bad. And that throughout history, that has, that has progressed and that has developed, but it's always been there. And what he's saying now is, if you can compare Christian morality and Nazi morality and say Christian morality is better, then what you're doing is you are preferring one morality of the other and you, you actually believe that you have a, some sort of standard by which to judge. Um, if I can say that, you know, love thy neighbor is better than kill all Jews, all priests, all, you know, homosexuals, all deviants, we believe. If I can say Christian morality is better than that, there's some standard by which I'm judging it. 
right? You, you can't just say, well, it's better. Why is it better? Oh, it's just better. No, there's a reason it's better because innately we know that it's better to treat somebody with kindness, even if you radically disagree with them on, on any number of issues, that it's better to treat them with kindness, with goodness, with love, than it is to treat them as subhuman, right? There's this standard of behavior that we just can't get away from that's just out there. So what he's doing is he's, he just keeps setting this up so that as you're reading it, which I know you're going to do tonight, <laughs> if you haven't read it yet, or this week, you know, he's, he's, he just, he's continuing to hammer this into us so that we get it. Okay, I get what he's saying. Um, this objective idea of morality. So if your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. Okay, so then um, let me read this last part. Um, do you all want a break or do you want me to just push through to 830? You're much tougher than Phoenicians. <laughs> they always want a break. Father, we need a break. They're tough up here. By the way, this is the largest class I've ever had. I've had all kinds of classes of, um, I mean, of, of a, well, we'll see how many people are here next week. But <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I've, done, I've done years and years of adult formation classes like this. And I think the highest I got was near 50. But um, I've, I've had larger one-off things. But so this is kind of cool. Okay, so here... Here, I'm going to read this. This is the very end of chapter 2 of book 1. Oh, yeah, this is the witches one. This is good. <laughs> I mean, that's not good. The, what he says. 300 years ago, this is what he said. One man said this to him. 300 years ago, people in England were putting witches to death. Was that what you call the rule of human nature or right conduct? And he says, but surely the reason we do not execute witches is that we do not believe there are such things. If we did, if we really thought that there were people going about who had sold themselves to the devil and received supernatural powers from him in return and were using these powers to kill their neighbors or drive them mad or bring them bad weather, surely we would all agree that if anyone deserved the death penalty, then these filthy quislings did. There is no difference of moral principle here. The difference is simply about matter of fact. It may be a great advance in knowledge not to believe in witches. There is no moral advance in not executing them when you do not think they are there. You would not call a man humane for ceasing to set mouse traps if he did so because he believed there were no mice in the house. Did you get that? You would not call a man humane. Oh, father's very humane. He's, he's setting, you know, he's not going to set mouse traps in his house for the mice. He's very humane. Well, how many mice does he have? He doesn't have any mice. Well, that's not humane. There's no mice. So he's saying the same thing with witches. To, to advance to the point where we realize that people are not killing other people through witchcraftery, um, recognizing that, is, is an advance in understanding the facts, but to no longer execute them because of it isn't really a development in morality. It just means that we now understand that those things don't, don't occur. Those things are not true. Okay, so, lubrication. 
All right, we'll kick out chapter 3. Okay, so he, you know, probably because he's on the radio, and each one of these talks are, you know, weekly addresses, he recapitulates at the beginning of the chapter. So he, he does a little bit of a review. So he says, now I go back to what I said at the end of the first chapter, that there were two odd things about the human race. And again, my point here, again, and I belabor it on purpose, is because just getting inside this, this, this is how he's treating it. There's this odd thing that we all do, or that we all hold to, but we don't do it, you know, this morality. So first, that human beings were haunted by the idea of a sort of behavior they ought to practice, what you might call fair play or decency or morality or the law of nature. And second, that they did not in fact do so. Now some of you may wonder why I call this odd. Um, And what he does is he's trying to figure out the truth of human nature. And now what what he's doing is he's comparing this internal law, this, uh, and he kind of throws about terms, but we're going to make a distinction between a law of nature, like gravity, with uh, a law of, which one is he using there? So we'll use laws of nature (laughs) um, and law of morality or human behavior, human behavior. And now he's going to make a distinction between what a rock does and what uh, a human being does. Okay, because he, and, and this is where he kind of, and again, perhaps because he's transcribing um, what he's saying, he's, he's a bit imprecise when he speaks of this, because sometimes he'll say law of nature, but then he'll use law of nature here. Perhaps he's doing this on purpose so that we might make a distinction between these two things um, that we use the same terminology for. Um, but, but on one hand, he's talking about morals, and the other, the other hand, he's talking about something like gravity, okay? And so when speaking of objects in the material wor- world and the laws that they obey, we are not speaking of a law that they obey as a matter of the use of some will. They simply do what they always do, okay? So when you describe... When I drop a rock, it falls because it obeys the law of gravity. It doesn't actually obey anything. And actually, to even say that it's a law of nature isn't to really say anything at all. It's just to say that this is what happens when you drop something. It falls. Why does it fall? Gravity. It does what rocks do when you drop them. You're not actually, by calling it a law of nature, 
you're not, actually, you're not actually describing anything new about the act. It's just doing what it does. And science puts a terminology on it called a, a, a law of nature or gravity, but it's not actually presenting anything new, okay? So he says this at the, well, I don't think your pagination is the same as mine. It follows that when we usually call the laws of nature, the way weather works on a tree, for example, may not really be laws in the strict sense, but only in a manner of speaking. When you say that falling stones always obey the law of gravitation, is, is not this much the same as saying that the law only means what stones always do? Yeah, that's what I just said, right? Okay. You do not really think that when a stone is let go, it suddenly remembers that it is under orders to fall to the ground. You only mean that, in fact, it does fall. In other words, you cannot be sure that there is anything over and above the facts themselves, any law about what ought to happen as distinct from what does happen. So I'm not, I'm not sure if you're tracking on this, but um, I think I am. So what, what he's saying is, remember what he set up for us is we have this law inside of us that keeps telling us, don't do the bad thing, do the good thing. Don't do the thing you're not supposed to do, do the thing you're supposed to do. And it's this law inside of us really conveying sort of information, right? Or, or pulling us in one direction or another. And he's saying, but that's not what happens in nature. We just call it a law because you call it something. It's just that rocks do this. But there's not like some law that it could disobey if it chose to, right? Like a law that's promulgated, uh, a law, a speeding law or ordinance, you don't have to obey it. It's still there. It's a... It's another will, if you will. It's an exterior will pressing upon your interior will, telling you to do something or not do something. But that's not happening to the rock. There's not like this law that's pressing upon its will because it doesn't have a will. It just does what a rock does. And what he's doing is making a distinction here because especially back in, I mean, it's still true today, but, but not to the same degree, um, you, had, you had the influence of what's called positivism, but we'll, we'll, and again, now the reason I'm using these words, I, I don't expect you to mem memorize them. I'm going to keep using them, and I'm hoping that after 12 years that you'll be able to tell me what scientific positivism is. Um, there's a few other ways. You could say naturalism, which is where he takes up. But anyway, basically, people believe that if science said it was true, it was true. Um, and people just assume that science, whatever science told them is true, is, was true. We don't actually believe in, we don't have that kind of faith in science like we used to, um, like our civilization used to, because science is... is has done what science does. Science continues to observe and continues to uh, do a better job at observation and sees deeper into the physical reality. And therefore, it looks like to us that it changes its mind. Right? How many studies have you read that, you know, broccoli is good for you and then it's not, <laughs> and that eggs are good for you and then they're not, or milk is good for you, but that's only because the U.S. dairymen you know, lobbied the, the government, and it's not actually good for you. Or, 
you know, I mean, I'm not taking a position on any one of those arguments. I'm just saying that with the, with the um, you know, with, with the, the constant changing of what science believes to be true, people at a certain point are like, well, you clearly, clearly science only says this is true until it finds a better answer. That's right. That's what science does. Right now, this is the best answer. And sometimes it's conclusive, but a lot of times it's not conclusive. Um, so he was saying, okay, you drop, the, you drop the rock, it does what it does. But when you, when you turn to the law of human nature, the law of decent behavior, it is a different matter. The law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. And so he gives an example. Now this is really so peculiar that one is tempted to try to explain it away. For instance, we might try to make out that when you say a man ought not to act as he does, you only mean the same as when you say that a stone is the wrong shape, namely, that what he is doing happens to be inconvenient for you. But that is simply untrue. A man occupying the corner seat in the train because he got there first, and a man who slipped into it while my back was turned and removed my bag are, e are both equally inconvenient. But I blame the second man and do not blame the first. The first got there before he did. The second one stole his seat. I'm not angry except perhaps for a moment before I come to my senses with a man who trips me up by accident. I'm angry with the man who tries to trip me up even if he does not succeed. Yet the first has hurt me, the second has not. So sometimes the behavior that I call bad is not inconvenient to me at all, but the very opposite. In war, each side may find a traitor on the other side very useful. But though they use him and pay him, they regard him as human vermin. Nobody trusts a traitor, even if he helps you. So it could be very convenient to you, but you don't trust him. So you cannot say that what we call decent behavior in others is simply the behavior that happens to be useful to us. Another person might say, well, the only reason you keep the moral law is because it's, it's beneficial to you personally. It means things like being content with 30 shillings when you might have got three pounds, doing schoolwork honestly when it would be easy to cheat, leaving a girl alone when you would like to make love to her, <laughs> staying in dangerous places when you could go somewhere safer, keeping promises you would rather not keep, and telling the truth even when it makes you look like a fool. So following the moral law is not always personally beneficial at all. And you might say, well, following the, the law, then it's good for society. Now, part of the reason he's setting all this stuff up is because you have ph philosophers coming before him who basically what happens after... Once we get into the modern era and after the Enlightenment, after the Enlightenment, uh, philosophy basically got rid of Christian morality. Okay? And what happened was the thinkers started to say, we don't need you know, mysticism or mythology like Christianity. We can, through the use of reason, because there's this ultimate confidence in reason, we can, through the use of reason, construct our own morality. And so what you have throughout the entire modern period, um, from, from the time of 
uh, from the Enlightenment is you have all of these thinkers, all of these philosophers trying to construct a morality based solely on reason. And there are all these competing moralities. And he's not specifying which one, but basically he's outlining for us in a very short fashion the different moralities that people came up with. One of them came up with a, a morality that was very useful for you. You know, is, it, is, is the law of human nature useful? Well, no, it's not always useful. Well, is it beneficial personally? I mean, if it can benefit me personally, then I'll keep it. A morality constructed solely based upon what is beneficial to me. And he says, well, no, that's, sometimes it's, it's very inconvenient to lie and look like a fool when doing so, you know, or, I mean, to tell the truth and, and look very foolish when doing so. So that's not true. And then, of course, there's all kinds of moralities that, that came around that said, well, keep this morality because it's good for society. Um, and, and he says, well, human beings, after all, have some sense. They see that you cannot have real safety or happiness except in a society where everyone plays fair. And it is because they see this that they try to behave decently. Now, of course, it's perfectly true that safety and happiness can only come from individuals, classes, and nations being honest and fair and kind to each other. It is one of the most important truths in the world. But as an explanation of why we feel as we do about right and wrong, it misses the point. If we ask, why ought I be unselfish, and you reply, because it's good for society, we may then ask, why should I care what's good for society except when it happens to pay me personally? And then you will have to say, because you ought to be unselfish, which simply brings us back to where we started. You are saying what is true, but you're not getting any further. If a man asked what was the point of playing football, it would not be much good saying in order to score goals, for trying to score goals is the game, not the reason for the game. And you would really only be saying that football was football, which is true, but not worth saying. In the same way, if a man asks, what is the point of behaving decently, it is no good replying in order to benefit society. For trying to benefit society, in other words, being unselfish, is one of the things decent behavior consists in. All you are really saying is that decent behavior is decent behavior. You would have said just as much if you had stopped at the statement, men ought to be unselfish. So he's just, de he's just de deconstructing the argument that the law of morality that exists in the world exists because it's beneficial for society. That's, that's the sole reason we do, the sole reason why, you know, you're honest or courageous or the sole reason for that some people would maintain is because it's good for society. And he's saying, well, I mean, it is good for society, but you're really just saying you ought to be virtuous because it's good to be virtuous. And it also happens to benefit society. You're not actually saying anything more about being virtuous because it, it just sort of collapses onto itself. Um, so his position then is that to say it's good for society doesn't actually move the point any further. Um, of course, everybody being unselfish is good for society, but that's still just the law of morality. Of course, Everybody being honest is good for society. But that's still just the same thing we said before. It's still this innate thing inside us. Does that make sense? Okay. I realize some, maybe some of this can get a little bit obscure. Consequently, this rule of right and wrong or law of human nature, or whatever you call it, <laughs> must somehow or other be a real thing. 
a thing that is really there, not made up by ourselves. And yet, it is not a fact in the ordinary sense, in the same way as our actual behavior is a fact. It begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality. In this particular case, there is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior, and yet quite definitely real, a real law which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. Okay, so now he's going to make this move to, um, to, to what's called metaphysics. Um, another good word. This is what happens when they keep sending priests to school. So, so um, you know, metaphysics, the study of first things, um, things or causes, or being. This is something science cannot study, because science can only study those things that exist in physical reality. And what he's saying now is, and this is the move he makes, and then he continues it with the next chapter, which we'll do next week. But he makes the next move, and he says, okay, this, this law that's pressing upon us that is not mere social convention, It's not merely something taught to us. It's something in us and yet distinct from us. But it's not a physical thing. It's not a physical thing that you can actually observe. So if if you were just observing human interaction, he gets to this in the next chapter, if you were just observing human interaction, you really couldn't tell that anybody was obeying a moral law at any particular point, that they're keeping the moral law. You'd just be observing that's what monkeys do. You know, this is what monkeys do. Why do they do it? Well, I mean, we know why they eat, but why do they? These are questions that science really doesn't answer because it's not what it studies. It doesn't study those things, ultimate causes or ultimate reasons. It can study, you know, the world itself and, and the construction of the universe to the degree that it can observe it. But when you ask the question, why the universe? Science is silent, and it ought to be because it's outside of its discipline. Science can't answer the question, why the universe? How could it? It's, it's a non-material question. It can only study matter. It can't study questions like that. That's what philosophy does. That's what theology does. Why the universe? Why am I here at all? Why the existence of life? And why this moral law pressing upon me? Where does it come from? Because it's not like something I can observe through science. It's not something science can just tell me because it's not physical. It's out there pressing upon me. And it's from there that he's going to move ultimately. And we'll get there. I can tell you this, that, that once we get to book two, then we're on to Christianity and theism and everything else. Okay, so you may, if this stuff is like a little too philosophical and you're like, meh, I don't know. Read, <laughs> read the first couple of chapters of the next book, okay? Because the payoff, it's one of these things where the payoff comes later. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, when you're, when you're, training, uh, when you're training to play uh, a sport and you have to run a lot of laps because you have to gain up your endurance so that when you actually play it, you have the endurance and you can, okay, that's basically... He's setting the stage for when we get to talking about God and Jesus Christ, 
we have this, this background of understanding that gets us there. He's also, by the way, for those of you who are really interested in this section, he's also giving really good um, answers to people who just say, well, I just believe in science. I don't believe in God. Really? Why do you do what's good? Well, because I want to. Yeah, but not always. Where does it come from? Where does that sense come from? Where do you have this intuition to do good and do evil? Can I just hit you right now? Because I think you're stupid? Can I slug you? <laughs> Bam. No, why not? Well, because what? Because of what? That's, that's what Lewis is getting at. Why? Why not? And he's using that as the key to unlock the existence of God. Does that make sense? And we'll get there. Just trust me. Okay? This concludes our session for tonight.